0: The going viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice.
1: HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events, and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 23rd of June. Professor Brent Richards explains in detail how to work with the always changing guidelines for their use, including the PBS criteria. A recent Health Ed GP survey showed that GPs want specific information on how to navigate the drug interactions, and he will explain this issue in detail so that you will see that while they are important, they are not as daunting as they might first seem. Brent will explain the relative efficacy of the two main agents available in primary care and how to select the right agent for your patient. He will also cover safety issues so that by the end of this podcast, GPs should feel much more confident in recommending these agents. In addition, Brent has spent much of the last two years helping guide Queensland's ICU capacity through the COVID crisis. And this has given him a very high level overview, which he would like to share with you particularly as the new, possibly more problematic COVID variants start arriving in Australia. In essence, the system will remain under considerable strain for some years to come and GPs need to understand the shape of this so that they too can plan.
0: So I wanted to step through working with uh, working uh, with COVID-19 and with antivirals. Um, where we are now is that COVID-19 is endemic to what we're doing. And so we need to move from it being just something that we were trying to deal with on the side to something that's now business as usual. And that does require a little bit of a shift in the way that we approach this. So... Just a quick conflict of interest, Uh, I've done commercial research for just about every known drug company on the planet uh, and attended too many conferences and spoken at too many conferences, again, sponsored by all of those companies. The next two slides, if you remember nothing else, just remember the next two slides. These are the take-home messages. So firstly, COVID is endemic. It's going to stay. It's going to stay here for a long time. It's constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. And what that means is the guidelines are going to change with it. The health system is particularly under huge pressure at the moment and will continue to be under huge pressure. So that's why we really need to actually start to approach this as a health system rather than uh, particularly around individual patients so that it's very much working at a health system level. And so we need to have a concerted approach to prevent and to minimize the effects of the disease. The information is rapidly changing and we're all used to using guidelines which are put in place, they take us six to 12 months to generate and then they're there for the next five years. These guidelines are changing literally every week. So we are going to have to get used to working with guidelines, continually referring to the guidelines and being aware that they will continue to change. And the currently available antivirals are actually getting to be remarkably good. Uh, It's been one of the big pluses of COVID is that we've actually got some good antivirals uh, for the first time really ever. And so it's worth getting to know them, worth getting to learn about them and how we would then go ahead to, uh, to use them. This is the second slide to remember, this is the Queensland Health COVID-19 updated recommendations. This is May, uh, and by the way, I think we're probably gonna change them next week. Uh, That's how often they're changing. There's uh, eight jurisdictions and uh, PBS and the National Task Force, so that's 10. And so between them, every week, one of those guidelines changes. uh, And that's because we all have slightly different views of the evidence. But really, when you look at it, it's as simple as, has the patient got COVID? Can you check that, please? Okay, do they fit into the risk groups and are they not pregnant? Um, yes, okay, can you please give them Paxlovid if that doesn't work? Think about some of the others, but really, Paxlovid is where you're going to be. Um, all the, the risk factors are there, fairly carefully spelled out, and we can go through those in a minute. The reality is, COVID is there, it's repeated waves and they're just going to keep happening. That sort of, the first blue graph is basically you look at the waves that have been happening through the UK and they just keep happening. They've got through now their BA2 wave, they haven't gotten into their BA45 wave, yet. and you may not know about BA45. We had uh, Wuhan, we had Delta, we've now got Omicron, we've had Omicron 1, we've now got Omicron uh, BA2. But as what you have, and we've had 2.12.1, 0.1, which we haven't seen a lot of just yet, but we probably will. But we've already got BA4 and BA5 starting to appear in Queensland, so we are likely to see a BA4 and 5 wave. And unfortunately, that's probably going to coincide with our influenza waves. The reality is, is that we're all facing a rising wave of information. So the amount of information we have to process per patient is going up every time we look at it. And we're starting to drown under all of that data. And we've all got, you know, fixed limited cognitive space and cognitive time. So we can either try and fight with all of that data, or really I think that is what we have to do is increasingly work with the guidelines that are there and the checklist and decision support, just so that we can get through our days to be frank. Uh, and increasingly that's happening, because we're also seeing this. We're seeing the great resignation. Uh, I think we've started to reach the limits of how many people we can put into this. So we're finding that we're starting to run out of staff, both doctors and nurses. Talking to people in aged care, they're looking at turning over up to 50% of their staff in the next two years. They're burnt out because of COVID. The doctors and nurses are burnt out because of COVID. I've looked at the the, uh, specialist locum rates and they've gone through the roof in recent weeks. Why? Because no one wants to, wants to actually give up their spare time to go and do locums anymore. So those dollar values are actually going through. The, we're literally running out of staff. So the great resignation is happening. I'm talking to junior doctors, I'm talking to nurses, we're all talking about leaving and not coming back. Um, and so we're working hard to try and stop that, but really it's, we've got to work within the system in that space. So if you put all that together, you've got COVID, the long-term effects of that, I put in there what I call now the population rectangle. We used to have a population pyramid where about there were six people who were taxpayers and could be healthcare workers. For every one that actually was retired and would actually consume taxes and require care, that's now getting below three to one. So yeah, our population pyramid's become a population rectangle. We're actually gonna run out of staff to do this. So we are gonna have to think differently. On top of that, we've got the great resignation And on top of that, we've got a health debt. We've spent two years not actually providing the public system all the care we should have provided. So we've built up this health debt. So at the same time, we've got an increased load and a decreased staff. We've got a health debt we're also trying to deal with. And so if you're wondering why we've got ramping, it actually becomes easy when you start to do the sums. So that's why we really need to start working together on this to try and actually get on top of the problem somehow. So now some pretty pictures on SARS. Uh, SARS SARS-CoV-2. So if you... To understand how to work with the drugs, you need to spend a little bit of time understanding what it is and how it gets in. So you get this nice little red spiky ball, and for some reason we always draw it in red, um, which has got these nice little spike proteins which attach to the ACE2 receptor and you yeah, that might be ringing some bells. Yes, it is the angiotensin-converting enzyme receptor. It is all over the place. It is in your fat and it is in various places. It's more common in males, which may be why uh, COVID-2 is, uh, COVID is actually a little bit more common in males, um, and it may be a little bit worse, and it does appear in some of your fat cells, and so there's some suggestions that it's also, uh, therefore, makes one of the reasons why uh, obese patients have a worse time. Uh, I, of interest just as an aside is that if someone's on an ACE inhibitor, they tend to do better, but starting an ACE inhibitor doesn't tend to help. So the virus gets in there, it gets uncoded, and then it gets translated and it translated into the sort of you know, long protein. And then is what happens is that protein's got to be broken down and then reassembled and transcribed and then create the viral genome in the cell. So I mean, the, you know, this, the cell's being hijacked by the virus and, and all the functionality is being hijacked. And then it gets expelled. And so you go, well, there's a few places we can attack that. So what are the therapeutic targets? So the first is you want to stop it binding. A lot of our uh, MABs have been in that binding space and they've, they used to work well, but you'll soon see that they don't work very well anymore. Why? Because they tend to be very specific to, that, to the brand of the spike protein. And that's obviously where the vaccines are working. You can decrease the entry and the exit from the cell, but again, the ACE inhibitors haven't turned out to be as useful as they could be. The big place is in the proteolysis. So where the, uh, the, protein, the initial protein is being broken down and then has to be reassembled, that's where we've got the big hit now, and we've got some great moves forward with the protease inhibitors. And the the fourth is RNA replication. So again, some of it is an RNA replication. And so that's where the RNA is being reformed and replicated, and then it goes out. So what you do is you just disrupt that, and basically it doesn't quite know what it's doing, and it doesn't do it well. You'll also see in a lot of the guidelines they talk about disease severity. And I hate to say it, the (laughs) alignment in this space is not good at all. So can I just simplify it and say, Mild-to-moderate disease is something that doesn't need to go to hospital, and mild-to-moderate disease tends to be a saturation of 93% or more on room air. Okay, But just understand you will look at it, and people talk about mild disease, moderate disease, severe disease. Just mild-to-moderate is what you'll be seeing that you're treating, you, you, you are choosing to treat at home. So, But understand that you will see different classifications. One of the reasons why a lot of the guidelines vary is that people look at this, which is the mortality associated with different age groups, and you see it's a continuum. It doesn't suddenly start at the age of 75 or the age of 65, which is where a lot of these guidelines uh, go to. You can see that it's actually, even for the 50 to 64 age group, it's 25 times uh, what it is in the younger population. So that's why there's a lot of variation. And you know, as that system gets more stressed, we might actually find the guidelines move to younger age. If you go to uh, South Korea, the, um, they have a cutoff at 50 now. So, and uh, their mortality is remarkably low. So we may end up in that space as yet. So what are the key therapies? And you know, at the end of this, most of the talk will be about Paxlovid or So A lot of these are very hard to say, so that's always fun, but monopiravir is the the second antiviral which was very good for a long time and works, and it doesn't have all of the uh, drug interactions. However, it's only about 30% effective against the current strains of Omicron. Um, So that's why it's it's dropping out or dropping, shall we say, further down the guidelines than a lot of other things. Uh, Nermatrilivir and ritonavir is the Paxlovid. So that's the one that we're actually seeing a lot of benefit from, and that seems to be 88% or maybe even more effective in some studies. Uh, there's two studies, the EPIC-SR and HR. Um, there's some new studies due to come out we will show it even works It works just as well in standard risk patients as high risk patients. Remdesivir is what we're using, uh, particularly in, in hospitals and in ICU, so we use it for moderate disease, we're also using it for severe disease. And it inhibits the viral replication the same way that molnupiravir does. Uh, every year we thought was going to be really good it was basically a pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, and so therefore for people who were not immune competent it seemed like a really good idea to give them this and give you um, effectively a year's worth of cover it worked really well uh, until Omicron came along and so unfortunately, yeah, we're still using it, we're still trying it, it's better than nothing, but it's nowhere near as effective as we would like it to be. And Citrovamab is pretty much in the same space. Again, it looked to be very useful um, as a treatment, but again, it seems to not be working quite so well in the Omicron space. And so uh, if I look at both of those, I think we're using about 10 or 12 doses a day through, throughout Queensland Health, so it's, it really has um, settled down. So just a quick note on guidelines. Guidelines have the word guide in it for a reason, they're a guide. Okay. The evidence is constantly changing so the guidelines will change. Please expect that because there's a, literally 10 studies coming out every day which need to be thought about in terms of guidelines. So they're a view of the evidence at the time that they were written okay? and the evidence does keep changing. And you will see that there is variation between what the PBS has got, what the National Task Force has got, what Queensland Health have got, what the RSCGP have got. The PBS is probably the most generous of the guidelines in terms of patients that qualify, uh, and that's what you're prescribing against, so that's the one to get your head around is what the PBS is allowing. Remember, guidelines can't possibly cover all clinical scenarios, and you, you will get patients who sit there for a little bit between the cracks, and it's expected that wider clinical consultation will occur in that, and all the ID guys are getting used to, very used to this. So if you're not sure, just ring somebody. So let's start talking with um, the key guidelines. This is the PBS criteria, and I'm very careful to, to take stuff directly off different websites so that there, even though yeah, it keeps changing. So this is off the NPS website. So what do you want to do? You want to say, has this person got COVID? You need to know their vaccination status. Um, you need to know, obviously, their age. And then are they immunocompromised, or immunocompromised? If they're immunocompromised, you put them in that space. And again, if you think they're immunocompromised, they probably do fit in one of the criteria. Okay, And then... Uh, have a look at their risk factors, and that's particularly around heart, liver, uh, kidneys, uh, that you look at that. The one thing that's a little different in the PBS is that you can be fully vaccinated and still qualify to get Paxlovid. So if you're over 75 and have other risk factors, then you can still qualify to get Paxlovid. So this is the combined PBS eligibility for the two substances. Um, so patient must have a positive PCR or a rat test. The rat test must have been done by someone in your practice. Okay, so it can't be, I just turned up and my rat test was positive, please give me the drug. That's not according to the PBS, okay. Patient must obviously have at least one sign, must not require hospitalization at the time, aged over 65 and be at high risk or be uh, uh, immunocompromised and the treatment needs to be initiated within five days. After five days it probably doesn't have much of a role at all, the horse is probably bolted. If you have a look at what high risk, and there is a lot of different definitions of high risk, this is what's in the PBS. So less than two, two or less doses of of the vaccine. So that's fairly straightforward. Uh, But you can see when you put these together, if someone's got a couple of big risk factors and they've got COVID, they don't actually, they can still be fully vaccinated, okay, but they can still qualify. So patients 75 years and over uh, and in residential aid care facility, fully vaccinated, they still qualify. And if you actually have a look at the other criteria, a lot of them look fairly straightforward neurological conditions, but we've got just congestive heart failure there for the moment for the heart, but in time that may change because there are some countries that are actually now recognising coronary artery disease. Uh, if someone's been treated for coronary artery disease or has a stent, then they're actually becoming eligible. Uh, obesity, we're doing a BMI greater than 30, but some countries are actually down to 25. Uh, and that last one yeah, it looks like a bit of a weasel, but it's not. The modified Monash model is Category 5 or above. Uh, you may know what area you're practising in. If you don't, go and have a look, because Namambay Valley, where I was yesterday for a wedding, um, is a Category 5. Uh, North Stradbroke, Port Douglas, they're all Category 5s. Okay, so have a look, that is a, because it basically means it's much harder for you to get, uh, get care. So make sure you remember that piece. Severely, moderately or severely immunocompromised. So if you think they are, the chances are you can fit them in, which is basically immunodeficiencies, hematological, neoplasms, uh, post-transplant. But also when you're using a lot of biologically active agents, particularly think about your uh, uh, rheumatoid patients. But also, have a look, four and five are places which, for some reason, fit under the immunocompromised, but are places that are very specific to the PBS, which is... They start talking about Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, congenital heart disease, okay? They are not there in the other guidelines, but they are really important. And so that they're considered definitely in the immunocompromised. And the same with people that are in residential care for severe intellectual or physical disabilities. Okay, So again, the, the group of patients that actually can be engaged in this programme uh, is much broader than most people are starting to uh, currently thinking about. Talking directly about molnupiravir, it's basically a nucleoside analog prodrug. Um, it's metabolized, and uh, as what it does is it looks at the virus and replaces some particles with other particles. At which stage it becomes an ineffective virus, and, does, and it manages to escape. So, therefore, is what you get is a virus that doesn't work. The only concern, that, which is only theoretical at the moment, is that if it's fiddling with the RNA, then people are worried that it might create problems by fiddling with the RNA in future. Hasn't been proven as yet, there's been no evidence of that, but it it is a a background concern, because basically what it's doing is creating a catastrophic error in the replication. It's fairly straightforward for patients who don't require oxygen, 800 milligrams every 12 hours. the one big plus of it, even though it doesn't work anywhere near as well as, as Paxlovid, is that there's no adjustment for renal or liver impairment, uh, and so that's a really important part. The side effects of both of these drugs is minimal. These are both really, really competent drugs, and it's, all, it's very hard to separate the side effects of the disease, the placebo and the drug, so the, the numbers are vanishingly small. So again, back to how we're targeting, if you have a look at most of what we did was the uh, we've been talking about um, remdesivir and uh, molnupiravir, are replication inhibitors, but then we come to proteolysis. So this is that step before where the, the protein, the initial protein is being broken down before it becomes properly replicated. And this is where the really fancy stuff is happening and where the protease inhibitors, which is your Paxilivir is working. Uh, and frankly, it's a really, really cool drug. <laughs> if you can have a cool drug, I think this is a cool drug. <laughs> um, is that it's basically hitting the Protease 3CL Pro. And there's two proteases that you can hit, but it hits that one. And as an aside, that is also the same in the SARS-1 and also MERS. So they were two things that we didn't have treatment for, which we now have treatment for. So it's a really big plus, because MERS was a real real worry for us uh, in the intensive care space. So is what it does is it, um, it, the 3CL pro cleaves the proteins, and so therefore if you can't cleave the proteins properly, then you can't form the virus, so therefore you don't, the virus doesn't go out. So it's a very simple mechanism when you start to think about it, but it's just stunningly powerful. The big thing is that it goes out; all goes through 3A4. Now I'll come to 3A4 in a minute. So the ritonavir is in there, not as the protease inhibitor itself, but it's an inhibitor to the metabolism of the nematravir. Okay, why? Because the half-life is only about four hours of an unless we put the ritonavir in there. And then is what it means you can get down to twice a day. If it wasn't for that, the ritonavir wouldn't be in there. So that's why you've got the two substances in one. So the proteolysis, as I said, there's basically two proteins. They sit there, they divide it into 11 sites plus three sites. Uh, you could actually hit either of those uh, those substances, either the M Pro uh, or the PL Pro. Uh, at the moment, we're only well, the companies are only hitting the 3CL Pro, but both of those are actually viable. So there is still a second round that we could do if we start to run out of um, grunt in the 3CL Pro. But again, it's, it works very well. And as I said that ritonavir is there because it's a cytochrome P. Th- uh, P3A or 3A4 inhibitor. If you think about it, it's almost like a penicillin probenecid. You know, you just decreases the excretion of the probenecid, decreases the excretion of the, of the penicillin. Well, basically that's what the rotinivir is doing, is decreasing the metabolism of it. The one thing that I would say is that it does irreversibly bind to the uh, cytochrome P453A4, and is what that means is that when you stop a drug because of that of uh, there being interference you can't restart it for three or four days after you've stopped the paxlivid because it takes three or four days for those enzymes to recover. So that's why it's there. So it does bind, but it binds irreversibly. So cytochrome P450, it's a place that, in my world of intensive care, that we learn to know and love and understand. But if you ever get a chance to dive into this, it's, it, it explains an enormous number of drug interactions you might not otherwise understand. And what it is, is there's more than one cytochrome P450. As you see, there's a a list of the standard ones there, the the, the 1A2s, the 2C9s, 2C19s. I don't see the 2E1 there, but we have 2E1 as well, which is where alcohol goes out through. Uh, But a lot of what we do is in cytochrome uh, 3A. Uh, And in that, you have inhibitors, and you have... Uh, induces, and so as well, as well as the substrates, some stuff can inhibit, some stuff can induce. And so that's what all the drug interactions are about, is, does it, is it a substrate, does it inhibit, or does it induce? P3450 is very busy, as you can see, it, it passes a lot of drugs, so the 3450A4, I'll expect you all to memorize that and now it'll disappear, uh, but have a, you, know, you will start to see some drugs there that's why you now start to see these long lists of potentially significant drug interactions. And again, you want to look carefully at some of this things like warfarin, rivaroxaban are obviously going to be important, whereas things like your HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors are less important because the therapeutic windows are both a lot broader and also it doesn't matter to stop those for a week or so for most patients. Uh, if you go into the, uh, the product information for, uh, for Pfizer... This is what you find. They talk about drugs that cause increased concentration of the co-administered drug, which is where they're basically competing. But there are also certain drugs that induce the enzyme, so therefore will make the Paxlovid less useful. Now that may all seem incredibly challenging to deal with. So what you do is you go to this website, covid19druginteractions.org. You just basically type your drug, the COVID drug and the co-medication, and it tells you, is there an interaction? It really is as simple as that. And there's one step easier. They have available this as a PDF, and literally it's what it is, is all of the commonly used drugs, and it lists them as either green, no interaction, uh, amber, have a think about it, but it's probably going to be okay, red, do not do unless you really have to. So really the simple way to work with this is to literally grab this piece of paper um, and use that because you will get through it very quickly and you will understand very quickly. So it's... Should be in your notes, it's easy to find, but it's it's the uh, drug interaction checker. That's what a pack looks like. Uh, Just in case your patients ask you, yes, there are three tablets to take twice a day. Uh, And if you've got renal impairment, you'll only take one of the two uh, nermitrelivir. And just some quick notes on women and children. Obviously, at this stage, it's avoided in most cases in terms of pregnancy, although remdesivir is a category 2B. Please remember to uh, to, uh, treat the partners exactly the same, so that therefore there is good contraceptive advice if the partner is actually getting treated uh, with Paxlivid. Not recommended during breastfeeding. Children, not usually a big issue. Uh, It's usually fairly mild disease, apart from the strange Kawasaki disease-type syndrome. Uh, But we can use Remdesivir if they're more than one month old, Um, and Sotrovir if they're more than 12 months. And I say that Nemetrovir, I think, will probably get released uh, for 12-plus in time. There are many good resources for you to deal with. Okay, but can I say, please look carefully at what those resources are for National Evidence Task Force, NPS. So in summary, COVID is endemic, it's here. We're just gonna learn to live with it. Okay, but learn to live with it means we're gonna have to manage it. Ha- we've got a health system under considerable strain. And so as what we need to do is to actually prevent as much disease, disorder, uh, and particularly hospitalization in the space as we can. The guidelines are gonna keep changing. I apologise for that, but that's the reality because the evidence is changing, so you will have to keep up with the guidelines. They are continuously evolving. These antivirals are really good, Yeah. so particularly the Paxlivid um, is, is an amazing molecule, um, and yeah, I think that it's really got a big place, and I think we're going to see its utility expanded. And at the end of this, to use it is all you've really got to do is to look carefully at the drug interactions, and again, there's some good resources for that. Remember, none of this gets rid of the public health measures that help us get to where we need to be. Thank you.
1: Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.